Leviticus chapter 26, what is that theme of Leviticus? Holiness. It's all about being holy. Uh, listening to Damien Kyle today, he had a great definition for idolatry. He said, idolatry is basically worshiping anything that is created. Worshiping anything that is created. Why is that such a great definition? Because there's only one being who is the creator. Everything else in the universe is created at one point or another. So if we are worshiping anything besides God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're committing idolatry. And some of us here, we may say, hey, I don't have one of those little lighthouses in my front yard. Lighthouse, yeah, that little house and you got like lights on it and there's a little statue inside, right? Some of us say, I don't commit idolatry, right? I've gone into some of those Asian restaurants with the little idol and the food. I don't do that at my house, right? But what's the first thing we think of when we wake up, right? What's the first thing we desire to do? Where do we spend our money? What do we do with our free time? Is it for the Lord, for the things of the Lord, or are we fulfilling all these other vices and we just attend church so people can perceive us to be religious and good people? Are we really serving Him, loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? In this chapter, you could call it the if chapter, chapter 26 and 27, God is in a sense setting up a document, a covenant, a treaty with the nation of Israel here. That's what God is doing. He's saying, if you do this, then I will do this. If you do this, then I will do this. And chapter 26, that word if is found 10 times. And in chapter 27, we'll look at that in a couple Wednesdays, that if occurs 23 times. So again, 33 times within these next two chapters. I don't know if any of you are into science. Any science buffs here? Any science nerds here, right? A couple of us, right? Anyone know what's Newton's third law of motion? That's it. Perfect, right there. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And sometimes within our lives, we think, I can make an action, I can make a decision, and it's just going to pop into a vacuum and nothing is going to happen. It's an outright lie. It goes against science and it goes against the Spirit of God Himself. Our God is a God of order. We looked at that a couple of chapters ago. He wants everything in a specific order. And every decision we make to obey God leads to blessings. Every decision we make to disobey God leads to death itself. I don't know if you guys have ever heard one of the worst things in parenting. I know it's none of the parents here, right? One of the worst things in parenting is empty threats, right? Have you ever heard that from a parent? Right? Pepito, you keep doing this. I'm going to call the police on you, right? And you keep telling him that over and over and over and over again, right? Whatever his name is, Harvey, whatever her name. And it always reminds me of this story. My granddad, he was a pastor too, and he was ministering to this family. He was helping this single mom to try to give manners to her child, to her son, and trying to instill in her being a godly parent and instill godly principles within this young man. So they took both of them to McDonald's, and they're talking about all these things. Kid has no manners. He's kind of a jerk, right? So they're talking about it, and he doesn't want to eat his cheeseburger. He ordered the happy meal. He said he wanted the cheeseburger, but now he wants the chicken nuggets, right? None of us have ever been there before as parents. But my granddad's there, and he's encouraging the mom. You, you already paid for it. He already did it. He's, he's got to eat the burger, right? So the threats start coming, right? 
Bebito, if you don't eat that cheeseburger, we're going to have to go to the bathroom. And the kids still not eating the burger. Bebito, if you don't eat the cheeseburger, we're going to have to go to the bathroom. They keep eating. Kids not eating the burger, playing with the toy. Finally, she picks up the kid. She grabs the cheeseburger, and she goes to the bathroom, right? My granddad's like, wow, she's, she's finally doing it. God bless her heart. So they finish up. They get the kid a milkshake afterwards, and then they're in the car. They've been teaching the kid to, like, give thanks. So the kid wants to give thanks. So first he says, Mommy, thank you for buying me that cheeseburger. Oh, man, God bless her heart. She's putting in these values in this kid. But then secondly, the kid goes, Thank you, Mommy, for eating my cheeseburger in the bathroom. (laughs) And again, sometimes parents make empty threats and never follow up on it. (laughs) Empty threats. And God, he does not give empty threats. Throughout God's word, there's blessings and there's curses, there are promises, there's God's grace involved in the middle of it all, but there are promises for each and every one of us. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16, you can just write it down, it says, The labor of the righteous leads to life, and the wages of the wicked to sin. Again, two different things here. The righteous, their labor leads to life. The wicked, their wages, what they receive in their life is to sin more and more. In John chapter 10, verse 10, another promise here for us. Jesus says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have a life and that they may have it more abundantly. So again, the more we make decisions for Jesus Christ, the more we have life and that abundantly. The more we are following the enemy, the more we're following sin, the more we are being right, lied to, we're having destruction in our lives, death in our lives, and things are being robbed from us. Another scripture on this is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, two roads, if you would, in each of these verses. If you continue to sin over and over and over again, the only thing you're going to receive, direct deposit, you can't send it back, right, is death itself. However, if we come to Christ in faith, just by grace, we get eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go to Galatians chapter 6. And in Galatians chapter 6, we see the same sort of idea here. Every action... There's an equal or opposite reaction there, right? Something's going to happen to us. Verse 6, it says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, whatever we're sowing into, that's exactly what we're going to reap. There's another portion of scriptures that warns us, if we sow to the wind, we're going to reap the whirlwind, right? 
You sow one little seed and you get a huge tree that bears much fruit and each of those fruits has tons of seed. So whatever you're sowing to, you're sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap a whirlwind of flesh and corruption and sin and death. You're sowing to the Lord and to the things of God, to the Spirit. You're going to reap everlasting life, a whirlwind of it, affecting your life and the people around you. We can come now to Leviticus 26. And here there's something very important to us to keep in mind here. The principle of these promises of blessings of obedience is still there for us today. But these exact promises are not for us as believers or Christians. These exact promises were for the nation of Israel coming out of slavery before going into the promised land. We can't take these promises and now place them upon our lives. We can take the principle of it, like we looked at in Galatians chapter 6, but these specific promises, as we'll see in the moment, are absolutely incredible, and we see the good part of the promises in the Old Testament, and we also see the bad and ugly part of the promises in the Old Testament as well. Let's read uh, verse 1. It says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Again, you shouldn't be creating things to bow down and worship. You already have a God. He's already been good to you. He's already saved you. He's already freed you from slavery, from death itself. Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths, plural, and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. We've looked at that Sabbaths. It's not just that Saturday, but it's all the different feasts. It's the year of Jubilee. They were to keep all of the law. Their sanctuary, they were to keep it as something that's holy. They weren't supposed to just go into the tabernacle or the tabernacle area and take it lightly. No, it's something that's holy. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, there's that word if, then I will give you rain in its season, the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely." I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. Again, what a blessing, what promises here for a group of people that were mostly made out of farmers and ranchers, right? Promises that if they're obedient to God, God himself will bring rain upon their land, They don't have to be super concerned about irrigation or drought or any problems like that. Then he says the land is going to yield so much fruit that from the time of threshing, they're going to already begin to reap once again once it's time to sow. That they're going to eat to the full. They're going to have safety. They're going to have abundance of food in their land. I think much of the blessings we've had as a nation is from our Christian foundation. But those are quickly running dry, right? If you've been to the grocery store or anything like that, perhaps we're beginning to see God's hand of grace and mercy away from our nation, and sooner or later we will go through the second half of Leviticus 26. There's going to be peace in the land. 
Nothing is going to give them fear. A land of evil beasts, right? There's not going to be any wild animals out there. God himself is going to clear it. And look at the end of verse 6. They, there's not going to be any war on their own land. The sword's not going to go through their land. Verse 7 and 8, I love these verses, especially looking at Judges and First and Second Samuel. It says, you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. You see, I love these verses because all the heroes of the Old Testament were just normal, everyday guys like you and me. The only special thing about them is that they were crazy enough to believe and trust in the God of the Bible and the book that he has left for us. That's the only difference in these great heroes of the faith. In 1 Samuel chapter 14... Verse 6 through 7, it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Again, Jonathan, he believed this. He said, Hey, God, he can save with a huge army and many people. But I remember those odds he gave us back in Leviticus. One in 20 odds, if you would, right? He can save by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. If you fast forward to verse 14, it tells us the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was 20 men in a half acre of land. Uh, Again, Jonathan was just crazy enough to believe the Bible. Crazy enough to be obedient to it. Crazy enough to trust in the Lord and to put different flags up to the Lord God. If, 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 you're, if you're in this, they're going to ask us to come up, right? If we're not in this, they're going to say, hey, we're going to go down there. If you're quick, you could turn to the book of Judges, chapter 7. We see this man, Gideon, right? And you see how the Lord, he uses brave men like Jonathan, a man of war that was constantly going to war. Hey, let's take it to the enemy. Let's take it to these Philistines. But God is also willing to use a scaredy cat, right? Gideon is threshing wheat in the middle of a cave, right? There's no wind in there. That's not the right place to do that. But in Judges chapter 7, verse 12, it says, Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. If you look real quick in chapter 8, verse 10, it gives us a better idea of the number here, right? It tells us locusts and cattle without number. But in Judges chapter 8, verse 10, it tells us, Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen." So 120,000 plus 15,000, 135,000 soldiers at least, right, were in this army. You go back to Judges chapter 7, verse 19, it says, So Gideon and 300 men, right? 300 versus 135,000, right? Who were with Gideon, they came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just as they posted the watch, they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. 
I imagine coming to the general. What's the game plan, general, right? How are we going to do this? Here's a torch. Here's a trumpet. Here's a pot, right? What are we going to do with this, bro, right? What's going on here? Think about the odds. There is a 0.2% chance of them winning, right? If you put in the odds, the numbers there. Or their odds of losing was 99.7783% chance of losing. And what are they losing? It's not a $5 lottery ticket. It's their lives. Their very lives. The odds, 1 in 450. However, the Lord was on their side. Gideon was being obedient to the voice of God. Again, Gideon, he's claiming these promises found here in Leviticus. Verse 20, So when the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in the right hand for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord, again, who's the one that got the victory for them? The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerira, as far as the border of Abel, Meholath, by Tabath. Again, the work of the Lord here. And today we need some more of these ordinary, everyday men who are just crazy enough to believe and trust in the God of the Bible and the book He has left for us. And the battles and the victories for most of us, it's not going to be bloodshed and war, but it's like the book of Acts and Peter saving lives instead of killing and destroying lives. That's the battle. That's the victory that God has most of us on today. We go back to Leviticus chapter 26. We continue. Verse 9, the Lord says, For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. Again, here we see the love that God has for the nation of Israel. God is making a treaty with them, even though they've done nothing to help him really, right? They've only caused more heartaches, more problems, more complaining, and more whining. He's the one that saves them from slavery. And yet he's willing to make a treaty with them. He's saved them. He's fed them. He could simply just demand obedience. He could say, hey, you either obey me or you die. Those are your choices, right? He could totally do that. But he loves them so much, he says, hey, if you're obedient to me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to take care of you. Verse 10, you shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. Forget about living paycheck to paycheck. That's what he's saying here, right? By the time the new paycheck comes in, you're not going to know what to do with all the old harvest that you still have. You'd have to dump it to make room for the next harvest. Verse 11 and 12, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. The best of all the promises, right? God keeps the best promise for last. God desired to have fellowship and relationship with the nation of Israel. And it's the same thing for you and I here today. God desires fellowship relationship with each and every one of us. He doesn't just say, hey, obey or be destroyed. No, he says, hey, I want to dwell among you. 
I want to spend time with you. I want to walk with you. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And different times in Israel's history, when they were being obedient to God, you could see God's blessing upon them. You could just write down 1 Kings chapter 10. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 9, the queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon and all the fame that's been going on about Solomon. Uh, concerning the name of the Lord, she comes and she tests him with a bunch of hard questions. And then finally in verse 9, she tells Solomon, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Again, the credit goes to the Lord. And in our lives, I think this is a key to keep us from growing prideful. I think this is a key to keep us from becoming Pharisees. That as we look at our lives, we wouldn't sit back and say, look at the kingdom I've built. Look at all that I've done, right? Sometimes as parents, we're blessed and our kids are doing well. We can say, look at my great parenting, right? Look at how incredible I am. No, we should be looking at the grace and mercy of God in our lives. How often he's saved us, how often he's protected us from heart attacks, from aneurysms, from car crashes, from so many difficulties. He's protected us. That we would look at our lives and say, blessed be the Lord my God, who's delighted in me. He's put me on this throne, however large or small it is. He's loved me forever, and he's put me in a position to do justice and righteousness. Again, give glory to God. God doesn't share his glory. If you think it's all about you and how great you are, be careful where you think you're prideful, where you think you stand strong, you will fall. Verse 13, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. You see, God desires that we belong to him. If you were at the men's conference, right, that first session was about not just being a servant to the Lord, but about biblically, we are to be slaves to the Lord. God's desire is that we would be his slaves. And if we are his slave, we live in freedom. But the moment we go and we become slaves to other things, we are no longer walking in freedom. That's what he's saying here. I've freed you. I've saved you. That you don't have to be slaves to all these evil masters. I've broken their yokes. I've caused you to walk upright. You don't have to walk with those shackles or that yoke around your neck. God wants to free you. You are not bound to sin. You're not bound to sin. I think oftentimes we lie to ourselves thinking, ah, everybody sins, everybody does it. It's not that big of a deal if I do this. Right? Sometimes we make excuses for friendships, for people we're dating. Ah, everybody's bad. Everybody's messed up. Everybody sins. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has sinned, but we do not have to sin. Right? Read Romans 6 when you go home. We don't have to do this. We have freedom in and through Christ Jesus. So these promises all summed up. Chuck Smith, he sums them up. He says, God will give them plenty in verse 4 and 5. God will give them peace in verse 6. God will give them protection in verse 6. God will give them power in verse 7 and 8. God will give them prosperity in verse 9. God will give them provisions in verse 10. And most important of all, God will give them his presence in verse 11 
and 12. And again, these promises, they're for Israel and their obedience. These specific promises are not for us as Christians and disciples. Why? We, we look at Jesus, right? Our leader, our master, our Lord. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life without sin. Did it lead to just blessings and peace? Prosperity? No, in this life, right, as a man, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was killed. So these promises physically are not for us. However, spiritually, all of these blessings are for us in and through obedience. If we obey God's word, if we're sowing to obedience and sowing to the Spirit, spiritually you will have plenty. Spiritually you will have peace. Think about how many people today just wish they could have peace. That they could get off the drugs they're on, the anxiety, the depression, all of the drugs that they're on. How many people crave peace? And God promises us if we're being obedient to Him, if we're being in Him, spending time with Him, Him abiding with us, we will have that spiritual peace. He'll give us spiritual protection. Right? There's some people, they like the demon ministry for whatever reason. Here at Calvary Chapel, we're not into the demon ministry, right? We're not fearful of them. We serve God. We serve Jesus. However, if you are truly a believer, a true disciple, you have spiritual protection. You don't have to worry that somehow Jesus is going to like step out, go to the bathroom, and a demon's going to come into your spirit, right? That's not going to happen. You're sealed. You don't have to worry about that. He's going to give you spiritual power, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit evident in our lives, spiritual prosperity, spiritual provisions, and most important of all, He promises us His presence. His presence. He desires to abide with us, to make his home with us. However, verse 14, right, that was all the good news of this document. Now we're looking at the bad news of this document. Verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. How quickly this changes, right? Instead of having peace and instead of having provisions, instead of having protection, you're going to be fearful of anything and everything. You're going to have terror in your life. And if you've ever lived a life of sin, a life when you're trying to live two lives, you constantly have terror. What if they find out who I really am? What if they find my phone? What if they find the drugs? What if they find the porn? Right? That fear, it's just in your heart. But God, if we're in Him, if we're obedient, we don't have to run. We don't have to be fearful of anything. A wasting disease, fever which shall consume us, Again, the world today, it puts sex on display and it only shows the good parts, right? It only shows the little bit of good, that passing moment of pleasure. They don't put all the STDs, all the broken marriages, all the images that run through people's mind, the depression, the lack of any self-worth, the feeling empty. They don't put that on TV. These different lifestyles, right? Uh, Pastor Mike, he mentioned it on Sunday, 
Where is their freedom? Where is their belonging? Where is their hope for someone that has gone through a sex change, gone through all this surgery, and then 10 years later they realize it was all a lie? What hope do they have in this life? No hope in this life. There's hope in the life to come. If they convert and now they come to Jesus Christ. But this is the warning to us. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God, right? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of verse 16 it says, You shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. You can think of the Midianites with Gideon. We were just talking about that. The Midianites came and it said they were like grasshoppers. Maybe that's where a bug's life got their idea, right? And they came and they took all of the crops of the Israelites and they ate all of their crops. Verse 17, I will set my face against you. So instead of being in his presence and him walking amongst us, now he's going to have his face against Israel. Instead of having the sword not go through their land, they're going to be defeated by their enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Again, it's bad enough to lose a war. It's much worse when you lose a war to an enemy that just doesn't want your oil or your land, but an enemy that hates you, that wants to see you destroyed. Again, instead of being in a place of strength and lack of fear, God is saying, hey, you're going to be so fearful, you're going to be running away and no one's even chasing you. Verse 18, and after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Damien Kyle says, God is more powerful than we are stubborn. God is more powerful than we are stubborn. Again, you got to be pretty stubborn that after all of these curses, you're still not turning back to the Lord. Because Israel, they tasted of the blessings, right? Read the whole book of Judges when you go home and you see up and down. They taste the blessings and they forget about it. And then they turn away. And then it's all the curses. Then all of a sudden they cry out to God. He saves them. He brings another judge and back and forth and back and forth. He will break our pride. The joy is we can choose to humble ourselves ahead of time. If you choose to humble yourself ahead of time, it's still painful. Your flesh still hates it, right? But there the Lord will lift you up. If you decide to puff yourself up with pride, God is the one that's going to have to break you and humiliate you. A lot more pain, but you're going to be brought low one way or the other. Either we do it in the spirit or God's going to do it in a very painful way. We talked about the farming. He says the heavens are going to be like iron. There's going to be no rain. It's going to be locked up. And your earth is going to be like bronze. I don't know how your backyard is. I remember at 67th, even some parts back here in the land, if you try to dig a hole for a palm tree, right? You got maybe like six inches and then you start hitting coral like crazy. God is saying, hey, if you were obedient, there's plentiful, plentiful harvest. If you begin to become disobedient, you're going to start banging on that and it's going to be like bronze they don't have the tools like we have today tools constantly breaking verse 20 your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit again how quickly this changes and maybe this is your testimony that was part of my testimony my strength was spent in vain 
I gave my best, my absolute best to people in this world and the things of this world, and it was all a waste. It was all in vain. Verse 21, Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your own sins. And I will send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children. They're going to destroy your livestock and make you few in number. And your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Again, we got to pray for the prodigals within our family. It's all about how much pain can they tolerate. Because the Lord says, hey, you're going to continue to walk contrary to me? Here's seven times more pain, right? You still are hard-hearted? Here's seven times more pain. And it's what's going to be left once they turn back to the Lord. Verse 25, and I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, even through hunger, even through pain, even through pestilence, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury." I don't know if you see how the Lord is sort of heating up here each time. The grace of God. That's what we should be seeing. Some people, they look at this and in our pride, why is God being so mean, right? What we should be able to see if you have a heart of humility is, Lord, why didn't you just wipe them out the first time? You freed them. You saved them from their slaves. They're coming against you. You could have just wiped them out the first time. Grace and mercy, seven times more. A little bit less grace, a little bit less mercy, a little bit less grace, a little bit less mercy. Verse 28, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Sadly, this is not a metaphor. God is saying if you continue to disobey, if you continue to harden your heart, your cities, your nation will be under the siege of your enemies. And sadly, Israel went through this many times over. They went through these painful, horrible sieges. You can write down 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24 through 29, and there it talks about how the nation of Syria gathered up against the armies and the people in Samaria. And they had a famine. They were selling donkey's head for food. And at one point or another, people were beginning to boil their own children because they were so starved and hungry. How people in their own sins, do they not sacrifice their own children? People in their own sins running away from God, do they not abort their own babies? Do they not sell their own kids, use their own kids for their own drug addictions? Again, this is the wages of sin. Verse 30, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. 
Again, we saw he wanted to walk with them. He wanted to have relationship with them. He says, hey, my soul will not abhor you. But now after, right, 17 verses of disobedience and hard-heartedness, he says, man, I'm going to abhor you. And why is God abhorring them at this point? It's all there in verse 30. They're no longer worshiping him. Instead, they've created these high places to worship the other gods and give their children up to these other gods. They're offering incense to these other gods. And he says that their bodies will drop dead on these very idols. Again, sadly, we see that today. So many people overdosing. So many people giving their lives to idols. And they end up dropping dead. Their idols have no power to save them. Verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. And you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. We looked at that two weeks ago. How Israel spent 70 years in Babylon because they owed God 70 years of that year of Sabbath. Verse 35, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into the hearts in the lands of their enemies, the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. Fear will grip the nation of Israel. Fear. A leaf falls down, and they think it's a sword coming at them, right? Again, has fear not gripped us? Our nation, are we not just gripped by fear? Every decision we're making based upon fear. Verse 37, they shall stumble over one another as if it were a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their fathers' iniquities which are with them and they shall waste away. What a bummer of a chapter. But then you look at verse 40. But, there's that word if again, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they will accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember and I will remember the land. And the land shall also be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they have despised my judgments because their soul abhorred my statutes." See, there's one part of the promise that still applies to us today. The moment we confess our iniquity, the moment we take ownership of our sins, the moment we own our guilt, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You could write down 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. That's exactly what the Apostle John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just saying, my be, right? It's not just saying, my bad, oopsie-daisy, I fell into sin or I slipped up. No, it's confessing our iniquity, confessing our unfaithfulness, confessing how we walked contrary against them. And notice in verse 41, they may have had circumcised bodies, but their hearts spiritually were still filled with the flesh. We may have an appearance of religiosity, but if God has not affected our heart, if we're not cutting out the flesh and the sin of our hearts, we're going to fall to this over and over again. But if we confess our sins, He will remember our covenant. It's not just our covenant, it's His covenant with Jesus Christ. That if we are in that blood, we're saved and we're freed. Verse 44 Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. You see, he still, he still claims them as his people, right? Even through all the difficulty, even through their hard-headedness, he says, hey, you're still my people, verse 45, but for their sakes I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. You could write down Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6. Here you see some of the promises and blessing here for the nation of Israel. He says, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob, and Israel will blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Again, a promise there. There's not, I don't think, any other nation that has been completely wiped out, and then the nation finds itself back in that same land. And with Israel, this has happened several times over It's happened with Babylon, it's happened with Rome, it's happened over and over and over again. And yet now they're back there, we've seen them blossom, we've seen them bud. They're top five, I think, in export for fruits and vegetables, and how God has done this work. So what about us? Do we have to be fearful that if we're disobedient, right away it's like pestilence, right away my eyes are going to rot out of their sockets, right? Right away, a leaf's going to fall down next to me and I'm going to start running for my life. Is this the life that God wants us to live in? Not at all. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and the healthy balance of this for the disciple of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. It tells us, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin or was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. 
For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see all that suffering that we read from verse 14 to 40? Jesus has gone through all that suffering for us. All of the wrath of God was poured out on him as he's upon the cross. All of it, all the wrath you deserve, all the wrath I deserve, hell for all of eternity for each and every one of us was poured out upon Jesus Christ in those hours that he was on the cross. So because he's gone through the suffering, now we get to have that relationship and friendship with God. And God doesn't look at our covenant. God looks at his covenant with his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to hold on to. That's what we have to cling to. If you're quick, you could turn to Galatians chapter 3. Again, the same idea. Jesus has suffered for us. Jesus, he bore our sins upon him. He took the curse of sin, the wages of sin. He took all of that on himself there on the cross for you and for me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 through 14, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Again, Jesus has redeemed us. He's taken our curse. He became a curse for us when he hung upon the tree. So now should we just go out and do whatever we want? Should we go out and sin willfully? Some of you guys are confused, right? Paul says, God forbid, right? No, that's not what you should be doing. Why? We already read right in Galatians 6, whatever we sow that we will reap. God is not mocked. You may be deceived. You may think it's no biggie. You think it may not be that bad. But God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Again, the whole idea of being a citizen of heaven, of being a pilgrim in this life, do you look like and act like a pilgrim? Do you look like an alien, right? Do you look like you're not from around here? Or do you live like the world? you act like the world? you take in entertainment like the world? you take your... Cues from the world, what the world says oh, is okay and not okay. Or are you truly a citizen of heaven? Are you waiting for that city whose builder and maker is God? Or do you look just like this world? I, again, that's difficult for us as parents. We need to have a high standard on our family. You think if Joshua had to tell the nation of Israel, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? What in the world should we be telling the unbelievers when it comes to our homes? And what we watch, what we listen to, how we act, how we behave. Again, parents here, don't just feel bad for your kids and just want to be friends with them. They need parents. They need godly parents to hold up the standard, to keep things holy, to make sure we are acting like aliens. That's what we need to be sure of. Let's close up in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 to the person here that's sinning willfully, the person that's sinning over and over and over again, and they just think they could just pray the same prayer over and over again. You may be clinging to a prayer you prayed one time or a stage you came up and you stood up and you cried an emotional experience. Again, I encourage you, if you're not reading Judges tonight, read First John tonight, right? Read First John. 
Do you obey God? Do you love God? And do you love his people? That's the mark of a true believer and a true Christian. You're obedient to God's word. You love the Lord and you love his people. The other danger for us, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, right? When you have a good parent, it's a blessing and a curse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, it tells us here, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Right? Back to that theme. Verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, if we're trained by that chastening, it leads to righteousness and fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But if we're hardening our heart over and over and over again to the Lord, it's only going to get worse and worse. So again, if you're here tonight, I encourage you, maybe you've been Tasting the wages of your sin. Just heartache. Waste. They're looking at how much you've invested in certain people or in certain things. And you look at what's in the, that bank account and there's only death. There's only waste. Maybe you're here and you know you've been going through the chastening of the Lord. You've been getting that good spanking, right? Don't get hard-hearted towards him. Be thankful that he loves you and that he cares for you. Verse 12 and 13, it says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Again, if you've been going through that spiritual chastening, yeah, it's time to come back to the Lord. Confess your sins. Ask for forgiveness. Ask the Lord to forgive you and be real about it. You didn't just slip and whoopsie, just sin came out of nowhere. no. It was in your heart. It was an idea of your mind. And when Satan whipped out that lure towards that sin, you made the decision to do it. You made the decision to execute on that desire and that lust out of your own heart. And I know this because I do it all the time and because it's in James, right? It's in our heart. It's not a whoopsie-daisy. It's not because of my parents. It's not because of the country. It's not because of my upbringing. It's because of me. And it's until I come to the Lord and I say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I was a slave. You freed me. You loved me. You gave me your presence. You gave me your protection. Lord, forgive me for being so dumb and so hard-hearted. Lord, would you forgive me? He's going to be faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from unrighteousness. And he desires to do that tonight.